Yes. Okay. So this is a 61-year-old postmenopausal cardiac intervention nurse who underwent a left modified radical mastectomy with immediate reconstruction with an implant in 1990 at age 45 when she was premenopausal for an invasive 0.4 centimeter comedocarcinoma with multifocal LCIS and DCIS. 24 axillary lymph nodes were negative. She had a mirror image right breast biopsy, which was benign. The tumor was ER and PR positive. She received no post-op chemotherapy or hormonal therapy. She got no post-op adjuvant therapy. In 1992, I recommended tamoxifen at that time. She took it for a few months and developed suprapubic pain and cramping, which was felt to be inflammation of her fibroids. And she stopped the tamoxifen. A year later, in 1993, she underwent a total hysterectomy and oophorectomy. And I put her back on tamoxifen at that time, and again, she stopped it after a couple of months because of hot flashes. So she did well for 10 years until 2003, when she developed a 1.5 centimeter by 1.5 centimeter recurrence just below the nipple tattoo on the reconstructed breast. The tumor was ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 negative by fish. She had resection of that lesion. She wanted to keep that breast, that implant. Since there were clear margins and all, we gave her local radiation therapy. She got 6,600 rads to the metastatic site and 4,500 to the chest wall. And she was started on Femara. In 2004, a mammography on the right breast revealed a new focus of microcalcifications. She had a mammatone core biopsy, which proved to be DCIS, solid and cribriform, with high nuclear grade and central necrosis. She opted for a simple mastectomy with immediate reconstruction and another implant. The mastectomy had residual DCIS, multiple minute foci within the vicinity of the initial biopsy. She discontinued the femara because of an episode of shortness of breath, which she attributed was due to the femara, and I switched her at that point to aromasin. So she did well on aromasin until November of 2005, when four weeks after starting Lipitor for hyperlipidemia, she was found to have abnormal LFTs. So I called her and told her we had elevated LFTs. We decided to discontinue the Lipitor and repeat LFTs four weeks later. Within two weeks of that phone conversation, she developed pain and swelling of the right upper quadrant, She had a sonogram done at that time, which showed multiple liver mets. And the liver function tests were markedly elevated, quadrupled from the time I had seen her two weeks earlier. And we did a liver biopsy. We had a CT-guided FNA biopsy, which was consistent with metastatic breast cancer. ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 negative by IHC and FISH. Further workup revealed multiple bone mets involving spine, ribs, and pelvis, but no evidence of myelopathy on MRI of the spine. What was her clinical condition, and did you think she was having any tumor-related symptomatology? Yes. At this point already, she was developing hip pain. She had abdominal pain from the liver mets. You could feel her liver? Oh, when she came back for examination at that time, I can now feel a liver, which was about four finger breaths below the right costal margin, and tender. Four finger, compared to how long? It was normal. Like how long previously you could not feel it? 
I saw her two weeks earlier when I just did routine bloods and got back elevated LFTs. And you couldn't she feel could, her liver at that point? I couldn't feel the liver. So her liver came down in two weeks? Yeah. What was her bilirubin? She was never obstructed. Bilirubin was normal. Okay. So Hope, what would you be thinking at this point? Well, I think that the biopsy was really a very critical part of her workup. We certainly see women who have very small invasive cancers who subsequently develop metastatic disease, and it's most unfortunate in this situation at 13 years, despite the fact that I think that she was treated appropriately for her local regional recurrence in breast, actually in skin, really. There was... You know, one of the things we've often done, although it makes no difference to the patient at the time, is to look very carefully at those local recurrences for residual breast tissue because many of those patients, for example, if you see a patient's had a mastectomy and they have an invasive chest wall recurrence with in situ disease as well, you know, you know that patient had residual breast tissue. And that's a big problem because, you know, the breast tissue is various places. The patient had a surgery that left tissue, a variety of issues. But having had that local regional recurrence puts her at enormous risk for eventually developing distant metastatic disease. I think obviously the hope was that hormone therapy would overcome that in radiation treatment. And of course, some women do enjoy long-term disease-free survival from that. But women who've had a local regional recurrence, depending on the extent of the disease, have between a 60 and 80% chance of eventually having distant recurrence. So Having the recurrence in liver is an unfortunate thing for her, but obviously still maintaining ER positivity, but appearing to be relatively hormone-resistant and growing in a hormone-resistant pattern. So this situation now would be one where we would institute chemotherapy. Now, with rising liver function tests, I don't know how abnormal her transaminases were. It can be quite a challenge, and I think that's the situation where we often want to see a very rapid response. And so using an intravenous chemo, you know, we like to often, I think all of us use capcitabine quite commonly in the first-line setting in women who aren't very symptomatic because they don't lose their hair, it's oral. But this is a situation where I would use intravenous chemotherapy. And in fact, I think it might be a situation where you would consider combination chemotherapy. You know, we talk about visceral crisis, and this is a patient who, if she could tolerate it, might be well-served by a combination like gemcitabine and paclitaxel. What other combinations, and what about bevacizumab, Hope? Well, I think that if bevacizumab now, I'm coming from California where, you know, certainly in the north, we're ruled by HMOs who don't approve bevacizumab. And we, for that reason, we have the ribbon one trial open. So she would be a candidate for the ribbon one trial, which randomizes in a two to one fashion between bevacizumab or not, or placebo with a menu of chemotherapy agents. So that's a treatment we've offered to our patients in this situation quite frequently. Uh, the patient said to you, I'll pay for the bevacizumab, whatever. What exactly would you give her? So I have a patient in that setting who's paying right now because she had a chest wall, but big chest wall recurrence, uh, bilateral mastectomies. And I'm giving her paclitaxel. Now she's getting NAB paclitaxel because she absolutely refused the pre-medications. But, you know, I think NAB we have to... NAB plus Bev? Yes, because, you know, we have to use evidence-based medicine to our best ability, and the data we have with bevacizumab is with paclitaxel. So I think that NAB paclitaxel is paclitaxel, so it was a reasonable jump in that particular patient. But I think that's a very, if you can get coverage or the patient is enormously wealthy, or you can use the assistance program, which is very helpful. I mean, the you know, trying to go back to the insurer and make a case for using bevacizumab, or if women have a very low income, you can get replacement for the bevacizumab. I think that that would be a very reasonable choice to use bevacizumab in a taxane. 
I have a question about her local recurrence in 2003 when it was one and a half centimeters. I mean, did you consider adjuvant chemotherapy in that instance? I mean, what were the markers of proliferation and the grade and all that sort of thing at that time? And was adjuvant chemo a consideration for this? No, I didn't. Recurrence? I actually didn't at that point. I thought yeah. local radiation and hormonal therapy would be. What do you yeah. think about that, Hope? Would you ever consider chemo for a late relapse that's one and a half centimeters? I well, mean, I, as you said, they have a very right. poor prognosis and. Maybe we should consider adjuvant therapy. Well, I, I think there's no data to uh, drive no us at all, of course. But, you know, this is a woman who, you know, it's a fascinating situation. We're seeing these very young women who then have, you know, if there's residual breast tissue, may have very high risk of local regional recurrence, even with small tumors, because they themselves are just at such high risk. And in that situation, we have actually given chemotherapy without any data. And, you know, the relatively short duration of time, I think, in this situation it's hard to know whether you can impact recurrence with chemotherapy. There's no data, but we certainly would have considered it at the time. So she comes to you for a second opinion at this point, Mark. So for first-line treatment, you know, I think that combination therapy is warranted because of her organ dysfunction. The one thing that impresses me about the E2100 data set is that you can get similar efficacy as a cytotoxic combination with a non-cytotoxic combination. So in this situation, I think the combination of a cytotoxic plus a biologic may have a higher therapeutic index than two cytotoxics and give you just as much bang for the buck. So I would have thought that a bevacizumab taxane combination would be a very reasonable treatment option, even off study. In How about include adding in GEM or capecitabine in addition? You know, I don't have enough data of those combinations in combination with bevacizumab to recommend them, so I probably wouldn't routinely recommend that off study. So, Can Mark, we, if you couldn't get bevacizumab, what would you do? Well, then, then a combination would be quite reasonable, and gempaclitaxel is certainly better tolerated than some of the other combinations, and that would be a, I think when a, we have approval, we're all going to be using baclitaxel bevacizumab in that setting. So let's just, before we go on to discuss it here, what happened to this woman? Well, just to go back in the history with her, you know, she's knowledgeable about her disease and all, but she had refused different treatments over the years, and... I don't remember the actual conversation which had the recurrence, but she wasn't looking to get chemotherapy at that time. And you couldn't be right or wrong in that right. setting because yeah. there's any data. Right. So It's um, interesting. She's a nurse also. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I started her on Zolota and Taxol as per Gratish's and JCO 2004 abstract and monthly Zometa. So she had a good response. The LFTs, CA2729 normalized. I could no longer palpate her liver. And actually, after about six courses of the combined treatment, I stopped the Taxol. She's on Zolota alone. She had an MRI done because she had some hip pain, and the orthopedist repeated MRI, which showed stable bone disease, no myelopathy, and the pictures on the MRI of the liver showed that there was now one lesion in the liver. Uh, Previous MRI had shown multiple lesions in the liver. I didn't do any other imaging. So clinically, she's fine. She remains on the Zolota and the Zometa monthly, and she's tolerating it well, and she's fully active. That's great. Never had any hand-foot problems? No, she's tolerated beautifully. And Larry Nornig was talking about the week on, week off, dose-dense Zolota. Hope, can you comment on that? You know, we have had a lot of discussions about this, and this is based on some animal modeling he's done. But, of course, long before he was doing animal modeling, we were giving a week on and a week off of capsidabine to our patients who didn't tolerate it well. 
And we've seen, although again, anecdotes can only go so far, that sometimes in patients who've been dose reduced and have some degree of progression, if you switch them to a week on, week off and escalate the dose, then you can keep them on it for another three or four months. So we've used that quite commonly in patients who don't tolerate it well, have a lot of hand-foot syndrome, and what they're doing at Sloan Kettering is really looking to see whether it's a more effective treatment regimen and can overcome some resistance. I think very intriguing idea. Could I ask, I'm just kind of curious from a personal perspective, what it's like taking care of her? What's it been like taking care of her in this situation? It's been a very good relationship. She's been divorced many years, and recently she just told me that she's actually considering getting married. And she had met a gentleman about, I guess, two years ago, and he's gone through this with her. And, you know, he knows, I haven't spoken with him, he hasn't come with an appointment, but she... She feels at this point he's been by her side, and I guess they both agreed that they may get married at this point. I hope that's not the first time I've heard about that happening. I'm sure you've seen that, too, mm-hmm. of you know, relationships developing during metastatic breast cancer. Yes, I think it's quite a nice thing because we also see the opposite, which is that when a patient gets early-stage breast cancer, loses their hair, their body changes, and this results in often very bitter divorces and difficulty with children and all sorts of insurance, etc. So seeing the reverse is quite nice. And I think that The case just highlights how difficult it is for all of us to care for our colleagues when they develop serious medical problems. And for me, it's breast cancer, I think that, because that's what I do, but for any cancer, and you know, all of us have faced that, uh, colleagues our own age who've died of metastatic disease, and it is really a very difficult situation for all involved. And I think that, you know, in that setting, we provide a tremendous amount of I think not just support from a cancer point of view as oncologists, but also friendship in a time which is very difficult for the patient. And the other thing is that she was, you know, we didn't mention, which I think is really important, is she was 45 when she first got diagnosed with her breast cancer. And uh, all of our premenopausal women, you know, we really delve very carefully into the family history and have them talk to our genetic counselors because, you know, you will uncover in the non-Ashkenazi population a group of patients who have a more homogeneous background to carry BRCA mutations. And that can be extremely useful because, you know, the last thing you want to do is have a patient who you treated for breast cancer pop up with ovarian cancer or have their sibling die of a cancer that might have been prevented. And then the patients who are long-term survivors, we screen with MRI if we know that they either have a strong family history or carry a mutation. Alan? Just to follow up on, hope your comments about taking care of the healthcare professional becomes ill. I think sometimes the experience is the healthcare professionals get worse care. It would be very difficult with these issues because sometimes the assumption is the healthcare professional knows more and we put more responsibility for their care on the doctor or nurse who is ill. Well, sometimes, you know, we do the hallway consults and the tendency is not to treat that person like a patient who really needs to be cared for like a patient and it can lead to suboptimal care. I don't know what your experience is. That's a great point. Dr. Henningsen? I saw Joyce O'Shaughnessy a couple months ago about a patient who was in a similar situation that we treated with Salota and Taxotere and was having a great response. And what she was saying is that she's using that regimen for patients treating four to six cycles and with the Taxotere, dropping the Taxotere and continuing the Salota to spare 
you know, any type of neuropathy. And she's having patients, you know, out two years doing great just on single-agent Zolota. Yeah, she calls Although, that Zolota maintenance, right. actually. Right. I mean, I think that we've all used Zolota for long durations of time. And I think if you're using any combination regimen where you're combining two chemo drugs, dropping one after response will reduce toxicity because we know that all those combinations are associated with more toxicity. But I think that, you know, that is anecdotal data that suggests that the combination followed by single-agent might be better, and we just don't know. Dr. Vasirka? Now that she's had such excellent cytoreductive therapy, would you consider going to third-line hormonal therapy? You know, she hasn't had Fazlodex. She had you know, both TAM and AI isn't TAM. Sure, at our next progression, if it's low-volume progression, then absolutely. How about right now? Well, right now she's doing so well in the Zolota, I probably wouldn't rock the boat. But if she becomes intolerant of the Zolota, gets some PPE, etc., then absolutely you could switch back to an endocrine maintenance. Actually, she had maybe six months of tamoxifen. I mean, she really didn't have tamoxifen. Right. She stopped it on two different occasions. And that would indicate that, based on some data from Jim Engold from the NCCTG trials, that you know they looked retrospectively at what would predict response to fulvestrant and not having you know had a lot of tamoxifen or progressed on it is a good predictor. So you could use it in two ways. Let's say she was having a lot of side effects. You could stop the capsidabine, use it for later, save it for later, and put her on fulvestrant, or you could use it at progression. It's interesting how much this is, you know, Joyce O'Shaughnessy's thing is actually a lot like chemo-hormonal therapy, where you give the both together, then you use the maintenance, and you know, Zolota, a lot of people consider sort of step-down between chemo and hormone therapy, and I'm actually going to ask Dr. Lowe to present what I think is a related case. Hopefully, this is going to be where your patient's going to be in a couple years, although I guess statistically that's not very likely, but it's kind of a related question. I just want to make a comment about Jeffrey's point. is a really good point, and this is what we always tell the fellows at our institution, and that is you know, when we see patients often in second opinion situations, they're coming in from the community, and they've been on sequential cytotoxics forever and ever, and people forget that they haven't had endocrine therapy in many cases yet. So it's, I think it's an extremely important consideration to remember that an ER-positive disease that you have endocrine therapy options and not get stuck on the cytotoxic bandwagon forever. Dr. Barbara? One quick question. In choosing the therapy, I like Zolota for asymptomatic metastatic disease, but when I see someone like this, I wonder about using an anthracycline because you only have a, you have a window when the bilirubin is normal that you can use an anthracycline. And would it have been a choice? Did you think about that? That you know, maybe this is the one time. If you're thinking about using a lot of different therapy in the future for her, alone or something else, with something else, what else? You know, you could give her tack. It's a really good point. Anthracyclines are an excellent agent for the treatment of advanced disease as well as in the adjuvant setting. But I think, for example, considering the use of TAC in that setting, for me, the point is our treatment of metastatic disease where we're hoping to prolong life but also maintain quality of life. And these combination regimens are just absolutely without question more toxic. And so that I really don't use full-dose non-liposomal anthracyclines in the metastatic setting just because of that toxicity issue and because I can get a lot of mileage over using doxol or weekly anthracyclines as we were discussing before. I've been impressed by what I've heard. You mentioned the Gratishar study. Also, Joanne Blum did a study with paclitaxel and capecitamine. What was this woman's quality of life when she was receiving the combination? She tolerated it beautifully. And she felt much better, you know, maybe after the first course of treatment. You know, it's kind of like sort of a taxotere taxol thing. And we've and used capsidabine, you know, you think of it as chemo light, you know, or whatever it is. But yes. actually, we've used it in people who have absolutely horrendous sure. disease, and they've been on it for a year and a half. I mean, I have a patient with severe, you know, with that kind of diffused infiltration, bilateral ureteral stents, and I just figured she's on her 32nd cycle of capsidabine now wow. with disease so control. So speaking of which, Dr. Lowe. Okay. 